Now, last time, uh, and as you know, we are coming through uh, dispensations in the Bible, and Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. A lot of ways to do that. The Bible is a book that has an unending dividing pattern to it. I mean, it really does. It just, uh, you know, it just, you can divide it up in, in so many different ways to get their answer. Obviously, I would say the key major aspect of rightly dividing your Bible would be dispensations. If I'm going to start with somebody like I did with you guys, teaching you the Bible, you remember the first things that we did, we, we defined a lot of things. We defined terms, we defined aspects of different things. And then as we got through this, we haven't really done any of the books of the Bible yet. That'll be our next um, thing that we do. We'll start coming through Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, uh, showing you how that they fit into the overall scheme of things. But, you know, before we even get to those, I, I have to set kind of a baseline of the Bible for you. And the baseline basically is dispensationalism. Totally unknown today, other than a handful of people out there that believe the Bible. Uh, I mean, the neo-evangelical crowd don't even know it exists. Most Baptist pastors know the word, um, but they don't know where it fits into the Bible. And it's really the reason why so much bad teaching is out there today because the Bible, they don't know how to put the Bible together. And we have come through them now. And last week we started the second coming moving into the millennium. And I told you that there's a couple of bridges that you, you want to, in dispensationalism, that are not dispensations themselves, but they're walkways from one dispensation to the other. Obviously, one was the rapture of the church. And that is a bridge that brings us from the church age into the tribulation period. Last time we talked about the second coming of Christ, which is another walkway or bridge from the tribulation into the millennium. And then you're going to see uh, today where we have a third one, and that is going to be the great white throne judgment. That itself is not a dispensation, but again, it's a bridge. It's a walkway from um, the end of the millennium into, um, into the uh, uh, Revelation chapter 21, a new heavens and a new earth and everything that God is going to do. So last time, <clears throat> we talked about the verses that deal with the second coming. I ran you back to Isaiah 63, Revelation 14, and all of those places. We talked about the battle of Armageddon, which takes place at the end of the tribulation. Um, we talked about the, um, how that uh, going into the millennium, that there basically are seven people groups that go in, and uh, I, I gave those out to you. And then I showed you uh, just basically that at the end of the thousand-year reign, that there is a revolt. Uh, at the end, the devil is let out of the bottomless pit for a season. He uh, comes after out, and I, I showed you and showed you why that uh, uh, God's concept is every before he ever starts his his original plan. Everything, everything that he, uh, everything that he created, 
uh, gets a chance to either be with him in that plan or not be. So the people in the millennium have been there for a thousand years. There's been no devil. He's been in the bottomless pit. So now he's allowed out one last time to deceive uh, anybody who does not like uh, what Christ is doing in the millennium. And actually, they try to overthrow it. We'll see it in a little bit here. And then, of course, uh, now this is the this is the end of it all. And today, you know, I want to go back and I want to look at the uh, the the internal aspects of the millennium. And uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, you want to remember is that uh, when it comes to Christianity, uh, you're going to find today three viewpoints on the millennial reign of Christ. And we are what you would call premillennialist. A uh, premillennialist is a, a dispensationalist. A premillennialist is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ is coming back literally and literally going to reign for a thousand years on uh, this earth. And then you have people who are uh, postmillennial, and they will believe that the world, we have to make the world a better place to live. We get all the problems solved, and when we bring the standards up to an acceptable level for Christ, then he comes back and establishes that. And that would be people like Methodists, Presbyterians, um, you know, uh, some of the neo-evangelical crowd, I'm sure, uh, the way out ones out there, people who actually believe in the social gospel, that they believe uh, taking care of the fellow man, uh, they're involved in all the social issues in society. Um, the way to stop violence in the city is more education, you know, and it's a thing where that's, that's the mindset. And through that, they want to bring the world to a peak level. And then God looks down and says, okay, they got it up to standards and then I'm going to come back. And of course, that's not how it works. The amillennial is somebody like a Catholic, a Jehovah witness, uh, who believes uh, in no literal return at all, but basically a spiritual a return. And, uh, you know, and it's no physical thing at all. So you're going to find those three are very prevalent. But you always want to remember that, and this is one of the first things that I learned when I first began to get into the Bible, we are premillennial in our approach to everything. Now you want to remember this. Because you get asked this sometimes. God, God has a thousand-year reign for three basic fundamental reasons. And within these three reasons, you pretty much can see everything. First of all, Christ to get rightly get all the kingdoms that are his. And uh, you'll notice in, uh, you know, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to him, uh, the issue was, you know, uh, the kingdom. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And of course, Christ refused that because uh, he knew he was going to get it. The devil wanted it because that would make him Christ. And, uh, and Christ, recognizing that, would, would be everything that he could want. So the first reason for the millennium is that Christ is going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign for a thousand years. Now, you're taught that you know, that in the Old Testament, we've covered this many, many times, but I always like to, you know, I always like to kick it when I get a shot at it. Uh, we've talked about this many, many times, how that the uh, people who know nothing about the Bible believe that in the Old Testament, they look forward to 
um, to the cross and we look back to the cross. And of course, yes, we do look back to the cross, but nobody in the Old Testament looked forward to uh, Christ dying on the cross. And that is such a ridiculous idea uh, to begin with. It has absolutely no foundation in the Bible. And if anything, the Bible is just completely the opposite in everything that it teaches. Those same kind of people will uh, believe that there's no difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which we covered early on. Once you go down that road and then, you know, you lose complete sight of anything that the millennium really is going to be. Everybody in the Old Testament was looking for the king, a king to come. This is why when Christ was born uh, in Matthew 2 and in Luke, uh, when the wise men came, they come looking for a king. And that king is associated with a kingdom, not the cross. They didn't come looking for somebody who was going to die on the cross for them. They brought Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and mirth. Every one of them represent one of the offices that Christ has, king, priest, and prophet. And they come looking for a king. They didn't come looking for somebody going to die on the cross. I, I don't know how somebody doesn't see those things. And, of course, his kingdom, you know, when uh, all through, before he goes to the cross, when he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the issue is a kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm talking about the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, where you have that great, great, great picture of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the saints in the Old Testament, when it talks about Abraham, it says that he, he looked for a city and a builder whose maker was God. He wasn't looking for the crucifixion. And of course, Abraham was promised a land grant. He was promised a piece of ground, not a crucifixion. And, you know, so it's a thing where everything in the Old Testament will point to the fact that the first reason for the millennium is that Christ is going to, uh, he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to judge for a thousand years. The second reason for it is that for the Jew is going to get the land uh, that was promised to him through Abraham and uh, way back in Genesis, and that land uh, was given to him. He's never really had all of it other than a short 40 years under Solomon's reign. And then uh, he has it, certainly doesn't have it today. Even though we know they're back in the land, uh, it's a very small part um, that they hold on to uh, compared to the overall land grant that they have. And in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, you'll find that where this is where the new covenant that he promises them that he's going to put it in their hearts and they're going to be his God, uh, they're, they're going to be his people and he's going to be their God. So that is, happens in the millennium. The third reason for it is for you and for me that we have a uh, millennial inheritance. And that millennial inheritance is based on us and what we figure out now to be part of God's program to do what God has called us to do, to be an intricate part of his overall plan, denying ourselves, putting everything else in our life aside, and just focusing on the fact that Christ, what he's done for us. And when a person does that, then, you know, when Christ comes back, then they get an inheritance. 
And that inheritance deals with whatever God is going to give us in the millennium as we reign with Christ. And obviously, there's people who get denied that. And, you know, that's another study, but and, and not part of what we're going to talk about today, but that's very clear. You need to understand that some people get denied that. It seems to be in the Bible, you have two different aspects. You have rewards, and then you have an inheritance. And every time you find it, it seems like the rewards in the form of a crown deal with the judgment seat of Christ, and the inheritance deals with the millennial reign of Christ. And a Christian can lose both of those. Uh, and, of course, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the importance of understanding. So those are the three reasons that you have a millennium. And you want to remember that. You want to put that someplace in your Bible. My suggestion would be my definitive passage on, 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 on the millennium uh, is Revelation chapter 20. There are places you could go to Ezekiel too in those places, but for me, it's easier, it's a place to remember where I can get everything there. And if you looked in my Bible, you would see that I have those three things listed uh, right there. Now, you know, the the next thing I want to to, uh, look at is, and I want you to look at the, uh, the structure and see how this works. And for this, we want to turn back to the book of Ezekiel. Last week, I think it was last time we were together, uh, and I might have done this on a Sunday morning too, I kind of showed you how Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39 all fit into the regathering of the nation of Israel and then moving into the tribulation period. And when you get into chapter 40, uh, the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel uh, really is a detailed study uh, layout of the millennial structure. I know of no place in the Bible <coughs> that does it this cleanly uh, and lays it out. I suggest that uh, anybody who wants to uh, uh, really get an understanding of it, uh, get a hold of Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth. He has a whole section in there on the millennial reign of Christ where he actually draws out <coughs> the aspects of the land grant given to Abraham. And then it's almost like he starts out <clears throat> with the throne in Jerusalem. And then what he does, and he kind of backs off in the next chapter and shows you a bigger picture of it. And then he backs off and shows you even a larger picture of it. And the throne gets smaller and smaller as the land grant gets bigger and bigger. And then the last thing he shows you is the land grant with the throne of God as just a small point in the middle and then divided up where the tribes get their inheritance. In my Bible, that was so easy to understand. And I'll be honest, Clarence Larkin sometimes in his charts can be very confusing. Uh, you know, I, I, it's, uh, sometimes they're not the easiest thing to follow. I've found a lot easier things to follow. But when it comes to the millennium and them charting it out, I've never seen anybody do it as easily understandable and as clear. And what I did in my Bible is that uh, I just replicated what he did in his book in the chapter that has to do with whatever picture he was drawing. So I don't have to carry Clarence Larkin's book around with me. It's right in there that I could either teach it when I read it, it's there, I can see it, I understand it, and it all breaks down for me uh, as, as I go through. And uh, 
So uh, I want to walk you through uh, each chapter here, basically, and just give you a uh, an idea of what each chapter he deals with. This won't be an in-depth in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but it's enough that you ought to put the headings uh, of what I'm going to give you uh, at the top of the, uh, of the chapters. Now, in chapter 40, in chapter 40, he begins a detailed description of the millennial temple that is built at the end of the tribulation period. And this temple, um, you know, it's it's a, a... Solomon's temple back in the Old Testament in Kings was a, was a picture of this, uh, a type of this. But Solomon is a type of the Christ in the millennium back in 1 Kings, where he's at, 1 Kings 10. And so it's a, it's a picture of how it, it's going to be. But in chapter 40, he begins to talk about the detailed description of it. And there's, there is so much detail to this. And again, uh, I mean, it, every part of it means something, I guarantee you. But trying to figure it all out, you know, and right now all I would try to get you to do would be just to, um, just to get an overall concept of it. So chapter 40 uh, and also chapter 41, you'll find that he goes into great detail uh, of, of what, this, what this is. And... You know, in chapter 42, he begins to talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is in the temple. And this is where Clarence Larkin uh, does his first diagram of this. And he shows every aspect that's talked about in chapter uh, uh, 42. And it's a thing where uh, every part of it there, he lists out, he lays out, and he, he does a nice little drawing of it, which I just put in my Bible right here, uh, of the sanctuary with the throne, um, the uh, river uh, of life coming out of the throne and coming down and going into the Dead Sea, uh, you know, and, and all those things. And all the little chambers he talks about, and they're all marked in an A, B, C, D, E, F, G code, which I also put in here. Uh, with the references to it. And then in chapter 43, he, he talks about the glory of God coming in through the eastern gate. Now, the eastern gate uh, is where when Christ comes back at the second coming, he lands on the Mount of Olives. And when he enters into Jerusalem, he goes through uh, the eastern gate. And the eastern gate is Uh, it faces the Mount of Olives. Uh, In 1543, uh, when the Turks had Jerusalem, a guy by the name of of Suleiman, uh, his title was Suleiman the Magnificent, and he uh, he was going to go into Jerusalem and to defy Christianity, he was going to go through the Eastern Gate. 
obviously showing himself superior to Christ that he went through the gate before Christ did because he knew, you know, he knew what Christianity taught and what they believed. The night before he was going to go into Jerusalem, he had a terrible dream that he went through the gate and God killed him. So he was so afraid of that dream that not only did he not go through it, but he walled the gate up that nobody could else could go through it. And that eastern gate is still walled up to this day <clears throat> that nobody has went through it. And, of course, it's reserved for Christ when he comes back. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, then he's going to go through it. And, um, you know, it's a thing where it's, a, uh, uh, it's an incredible prophecy which is going to take place. So that's chapter 43. In chapter 44, he starts going through the gate for the prince. Now in the millennium, you have the king on the throne, which is Christ, and then you have a prince on the throne, and that prince is David. And you'll find that in Ezekiel 34, 24, and then Ezekiel 44, 3. And uh, it's very clear that, uh, you know, it's, it's David that uh, uh, is the, uh, uh, at 34, 24, uh, what did I say? Yeah, 34, 24, that uh, it's David. And it's a thing where uh, all this is he's sitting there with Christ on that throne. Now in chapter 45, he begins to break down the land. And the first thing he talks about is, is the Lord's portion, which will be the holy oblation. And the holy oblation will be the place where Christ's throne is. Uh, that is where the sanctuary and the temple is. And here again, here again, Larkin did a, a job of pulling back a little bit, making where in the last diagram, the sanctuary was the whole thing that he focused on. Now, from this diagram, the sanctuary is just a very small part. And he shows you on top of that, the Levite's portion, and then the priest's portion, and, and then the Lord's portion. And everything here is, you know, is, is, again, drawn out in a very uh, understandable, easy way. And in chapter 46, you begin to see the worship and the praise of the people. And this is where, you know, as I've said many, many times, um, the average pastor today... Bible scholar, Bible teacher, whatever. First of all, they're oblivious to Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Clarence Larkin's books have been trashed by scholars, you know, 70, 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, the only ones who buy them anymore are people like you, or me, you know, who see the value of them. Nobody pays attention to it anymore. We have completely moved way beyond <clears throat> any kind of depth teaching that was around in the 1900s with guys like him and some of the other guys that are, were around at that particular point in time. So in the millennium, and again, just get, just get any book by any famous guy today um, on the millennium, and it'll be an absolute waste of time. It's like wading through a mud puddle compared to trying to wade through the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean. There's no depth to it at all. And it's all surface stuff. They have no idea. They think that the millennium runs just like the church age does. 
True, in the millennium, it's a government. In the millennium, it's a structure. It's a government. And everything runs just like it is today, where you have people, you have cities, you have countries. All of that is the same. But the relationship with God is not the same. Right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. In the millennium, you're going to walk by sight and not by faith. That is a hard concept for Baptists to get. And the reason why now we walk by faith and not, uh, uh, faith and not by sight is because Christ's not here. So we have to have faith in the book. In the millennium, he is here sitting on the throne. Faith has nothing to do with it anymore. So you don't walk by faith, you walk by sight. He's there. And you follow the rules of the established government that he has established. And so, you know, most people think that in the millennium, I guess, that if they ever even address it, they, they just think that, you know, salvation comes from somebody recognizing Christ's death on the cross. In the millennium, there'll be no reference or preaching to Christ dying on the cross. In the millennium, he is on the throne and he's the king. God is not going to hit the rewind button and take him back when he was on the shame of the cross. The whole theme of the Bible and the day of the Lord and God's day is not when he was crucified, but when he sits down on the throne and now he's crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And everything about it is that way. So because of that, you have, again, sacrifices being brought into uh, the millennium. Uh, Keep your finger in chapter 46 and come back to Colossians 2. And I think I gave you this last time, but again, it, it, it bears seeing it again. And all this stuff is just found in the Bible. You notice I haven't cracked one thing, haven't went anywhere. I'm just showing you what the Bible says because, you know, that's the way to do, only way to do it. Now, in Colossians 2, we know that Christ has taken the law out of the way by dying on the cross. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances, the Old Testament law, that was against us, Uh, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When he died on the cross, (coughs) Old Testament is done, kaput, finished, no more. And having spoiled principalities, that's the devil and his crowd, and powers, that would be the nations, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, in his death on the cross. Because of that, next verse, let no man therefore judge you in meat as an Old Testament meat offering or drink as an Old Testament drink offering or in respect of a holy day, Old Testament, uh, or in the new moon or the Sabbath days, Old Testament. Look at it, verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come. But then he says, but now the body is of Christ. They're not for now because we are the body of Christ. But Those things are a shadow of things that are going to come because they're going to come back. All right, look at Ezekiel chapter 46, and I'll show it to you. Verse 3. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moon. Bang! I just showed you those things in Colossians 2 that we're not doing anymore. And the burnt offerings that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish and the meat offering, there it is, 
Colossians 2, shall be an ephra of a ram and the meat offering for the lambs. Uh, and in the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bullock. In other words, this stuff is back in effect during the, during the, millennial, during the millennial reign of Christ. And of course, you know, this is totally contrary to what is being taught out there, what has been taught out there. And if you took the average Baptist preacher, I won't even put the neo-evangelicals in this crowd because they are so absolutely ridiculously stupid. They couldn't find anything. But if you took a Baptist who was supposed to know these things, put him in Ezekiel 40 through 48, he would be lost as he could be of trying to figure it all out. And he wouldn't know what to do with these passages. Hence, you got these guys who write these books on the millennium. And very frankly... There is not a lot of books out there on it. And the reason why they're not is because these guys don't know what they're talking about. And the guys that do write it are legends in their own mind. And when you read their works, it's, it's pretty much a joke. So then in 47, 47 now, out of the holy oblation, out of the temple, out of the Lord's portion, runs a river. And this is called the river of the sanctuary in chapter 47. It's found in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. And this river comes out from under the altar, comes out and it's got trees planted on both sides, which are a type of the tree of life. It runs down and goes into the Dead Sea. And then the Dead Sea comes alive And it runs down through the desert, and this is where Isaiah chapter uh, 35, 1 says, in the millennium, when the water comes down through the desert, the desert turns back into the Garden of Eden, and the desert blooms as a rose. And then it switches and goes to the east and goes into the the millennium, or into the Mediterranean. And uh, this whole chapter uh, deals uh, uh, deals with that. And then when you get in chapter 48, and in chapter 48, now you have the, uh, the land grant that was given to Abraham. And now Larkin here does his final chart of this, and it's a blowout showing you the whole area of the land grant, and the Lord's portion, the holy oblation, is now just a small mark in the middle. He's stepped back and he's showing you now the tribes that get their inheritance. And again, I I wrote that out uh, or drew that out and then put the land in, put the holy oblation as a very small mark in there and everything. Um, And uh, and then it goes from there. So that's what he does in the 40 through chapter 48. And he winds up showing us the, uh, the land grant and how it's going to uh, you know, it's going to be fulfilled uh, once he brings us through this thing. So 40 through 48, without a doubt, are the eight greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible on dealing with, uh, hang on a second, on dealing with the millennial reign of Christ. Every aspect is laid out. And I just gave you the Cook's tour. I mean, you get Larkin's book, and if you want to take a in-depth, systematic, incredible study, get his book. And just follow everything that he does and he takes you. Uh, It's right on the money all the way down through it. Now, let me see here where I want to go here. 
All right, turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Now, there are, there's so much throughout the Bible about the millennium. And Revelation chapter 20 is my definitive chapter on it, even though it really isn't a definitive chapter on it. It's, it's my place where I go. And I'll tell you why I do it. It follows the course of the book of Revelation. I've told you before, Revelation 1, 2, 3 is the church age, 4 is the rapture, 5 through 19 is the tribulation, 19 is the second coming, 20 is the millennium, 21 is new heaven, new earth, 22 is eternity. So it's got a nice flow to it. So I'm going to use the book of Revelation as my home base to go wherever I want to go. And you can do it however you want to do it. I told you last week, you know, I have all my references on the second coming in chapter 19. Chapter 19 is not in Revelation. It's not the definitive chapter on it, but it is my home base chapter because it follows in the consistency of the whole thing. So I can go to one book, one book, the book of Revelation. And because I've used every aspect, every segment, everything that is there, I can you know, I can make it work and, and just have it at my fingertips. And for me, um, you know, teaching the Bible, uh, you want to have things easy access that's easy to remember. My memory is shot. I can't remember where I put my phone and my car keys. That's why I have to have multiple phones so I can call the other one to find out where I laid it down at. But when it comes to the Bible, you always want to have that stuff at your fingertips. Easiest way to do it is not try to remember all the places, get you a consistent passage, book, whatever, that relatively defines it. In most cases, I'll use definitive passages. Uh, but in this case, you know, it's easier to follow the flow of the book because there's, I can get so many things out of one book if I just, it's easier for me to remember the breakdown of a book where all the places are. So if somebody on Thursday night asked me a question about the rapture, I'll go to Revelation 4, bang, everything is there. Somebody asked me about the second coming, I'll go to Revelation 19, bang, everything is there. Somebody asked me about Revelation 20 millennium, I'll go there, bang, and everything is there. Somebody asked me about the new heavens and the new earth, I'll go to chapter 21, bang, everything is right there. It's just easier in a systematic way to put your Bible together that way. But, in the scheme of things, Revelation chapter 19 is the tr- second coming of Christ. And when you come down to verse 19, 20, 21, then you're, you're finished it out. And then in chapter 20, now we start in our systematic order of events. The next dispensation now will be the millennium. And let's read it together here. Let's read chapter 20 together. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now notice how in one verse he gives you all the key words you need to know. So wherever you go throughout the Bible, if you find the word dragon, if you find the word serpent, um, you know now what you're dealing with. And, uh, and it's just, that's the way he does it. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a season. All right, the first thing I want you to see out of here, and we're going to take this chapter in sections, 
is the fact that when the Lord comes back at the second coming, the devil uh, is taken uh, and put into the bottomless pit. And he, he's there now for a thousand years. He tells you that up here in verse, uh, in verse 2. Uh, and he can't get out. So basically, the first thing that you want to know is the fact that during that thousand-year reign, there is no influence from the devil himself. He and his demonic hordes are now all in the bottomless pit. And that's where they're at. And they're chained. Having said that, well, hold on, we'll come on through that in a minute. And, uh, and then it says he must be loose for a little season at the end of verse uh, 3. And I said it last week, the reason for that is, is because during the millennium, you're going to have people who are born. And those people who are born are going to not know anything about the devil. Uh, they're not going to know have any negative influence in their life to be an opposite to what God is. All they're going to have is the righteous reign of Christ. But... These people, contrary to what everybody teaching out there, getting back to the Bible, these people are in their natural bodies. They never get glorified bodies. They're in their natural bodies in a governmental system, just like the governmental system we have now, except this one is made run in righteousness with Christ on the throne. And as you'll see in a little bit, there's homes, there's cities, they're having children. They're raising families. It's all going along that. But there may be no devil, but they still are in their old nature as human beings. They're still in a fallen race of Adam. And they, before God takes that all away, which he's going to, before God takes that all away, again, going back to God's original purpose and plan, he has to give them a chance to either accept or reject. Free will in the Bible is, I, I don't know how, I, I, I don't know how, uh, well, I guess I do. I have people who I know that are acquaintances, some of them are friends, some of them are just, I know, I've known for a long time, who are Calvinist, and uh, they believe in predestination. There's one thing about every one of them, no matter where they're at in the country, where they're at in, in what church they're in, there's one characteristic about every one of them that pulls them all in the same boat. And that is, and I've, I've, I've dealt with this for many, 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 many years. And the number one characteristic that none of them really know anything about the Bible. Uh, I've, I've never understood how anybody with any kind of intelligence of getting into the Bible could ever buy into uh, Calvinism or the concept of predestination. Most of it comes from the scholarly world. You'll find that most Bible colleges, uh, some more than others, but they'll all have a, a Calvinism tinge to them. And, uh, and in time, they completely go over that way. So this is where the kids go into Bible college and they get it. Other guys are just stupid. That's the best term. I've known pastors that were just, when it came to the Bible, they were oblivious. And yet, they can't figure out 
anything about the Bible. I get calls from them over the years. You know, what does this mean? What does this mean? Somebody asked me this question. They can't figure out the basic things of the Bible, but they want me to believe that they got the concept of eternal predestination down. Are you kidding me? And it's, it, it, they all have one mindset. They're really stupid when it comes to the scriptures. You find coming through the Old Testament, what, 18 times he uses the word in relation to God and you doing something for God, the word free will. Over 18 times, never one time do you find anything in the Bible that even is remotely connected to Calvinism or predestination. And that's why when you understand dispensations, dispensations bring with it the concept that I've talked about many, many times, that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, probably 21, everything that God created has a chance through their free will to either be part of God's program and get on the bus, be not a program, or go on the bus that's headed south. But it's, it's just that simple. And so again, he's let out for a little season because there's people in the millennium in their flesh and blood bodies. Come over to Ezekiel or Zechariah 14, and I'll show it to you in a, a more detailed manner. Zechariah will be the second to the last book uh, in the Old Testament before Malachi. Now, 14, look at it. Behold the day of the Lord. Notice in verse 4, uh, verse 3, battle of Armageddon, verse 4, and his feet shall stand upon that day upon the Mount of Olives. There is what I told you. The eastern gate faces the Mount of Olives. This is where he gets off the horse and walks through the eastern gate. Uh, And he comes on down through here. uh, And he talks about 6 and 7. Uh, the end of the tribula- uh, end of the battle, the tribulation period, uh, and uh, and then he comes on down here, uh, and he talks about the um, battle of Armageddon and all that stuff. Now look at verse sixteen. End of the tribulation, going into the millennium. Now, now watch it very carefully. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left. Now, who is that? That's the people in human bodies like yours and mine today who survive, either the Antichrist didn't get to them, which he won't be able to get to everybody, but these are all the nations. Look what he says. And that come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem. So there's people in these nations that were in the nation that came up, but they weren't part of it. They didn't go along with the Antichrist. And they go into the millennium. Now, when they go into the millennium, they have kids, they have families. Show it to you in a moment. They'll have kids, they'll have families. And, uh, you know, those kids uh, and, and, and they grow up in the millennium for a thousand years, they will 
you know, they will not have had made a choice. So the devil is let out of the, out of the bottomless pit for a short time to, uh, to deceive the nations because this is the last time in the Bible that I can find where after this, everybody from Genesis to here has made their choice. And then in God's mind, he's satisfied with it. And now he moves on out into his plan, which we'll get into. And we get into the eternity coming up in the next couple of weeks. We're going to get into some stuff. Now watch this, 16. Here it is again. These nations come up and they have to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And some of them won't come up. So God sends them plagues. During the millennium, there's an underground movement of people who are not happy with what the Lord is doing. And these are who, when the devil is loosed out of his prison, these are who he finds that want to try to overthrow uh, God one last time. So just so you know. All right, back to Revelation 20. Verse 4, And I saw the thrones, and they that sat upon them, judging and giving unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which were not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor received his mark upon their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this will be the people, tribulation saints here he's talking about. But the rest of the dead, that's the unsaved people, but the rest of the dead uh, lived not again until the thousand years were fulfilled. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Uh, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now here it comes. <clears throat> and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as at the sand of the sea. So evidently there is a whole lot of people. Now, let me tell you how this works. And I don't have, I don't have everything that, that we're going to be doing, but here's how the millennium is going to work with all parties concerned. Christ is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem. David is going to be sitting next to him. On 12 thrones, judging Israel, is going to be the 12 apostles. Israel is going to, the temple of God, going to be as I laid out in Ezekiel, right there in Jerusalem. And then the land grant, as I gave it to you, there in the land grant that was given to Abraham. All the other nations on this earth that are left, are going to have to come in, it looks like, on a yearly basis to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The reason it's the Feast of Tabernacles is because Feast of Tabernacles is the key feast uh, in the Bible uh, that commemorates the second coming of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles is when God created it all in Genesis. The Feast of Tabernacles is when Christ was born. The Feast of Tabernacles will be the time of the second coming. And it's, they're going in to commemorate through the Feast of Tabernacles, Christ's second coming. Now, it told you there that there's a bunch of people who are not happy with this. When the devil gets out, he'll find. During the millennium, they have to be, it has to be very suppressed because here's how it works. Us, 
we're going to be Jesus Christ. You know that. Right now, you got God living inside your soul, inside your body. And uh, it's going to come to the place where when the Lord comes back, you're going to become Jesus Christ in every way, shape, or form. And uh, you're, going to, uh, you're going to look just like him. You're going to be him. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Uh, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But it's coming. So you're going to be an exact, perfect, complete, I'm not even going to use the word replica. You're going to be Jesus Christ. If you're Jesus Christ, then you're going to be God because you're God's son, just as he is. So you're going to have Christ on the throne. God is up in heaven. God is a spirit. And then across this earth, you're going to have nations and people, cities, towns, that you and I are going to be over in some fashion maintaining the righteousness of Christ's kingdom in flowing out of Jerusalem. Now, if you're God, which you will be, if you're Christ, that you will be, then you're going to know everything that everybody thinks. You're going to know everything that God does. So it'll really be hard for somebody to actively take a part in trying to overthrow it during that time because there's going to be what? How many millions of policemen, I'll use the word, uh, like Christ, us, the body of Christ, who are enforcing it, who are there and throughout every capacity that a person can't even have a thought that nine million people, types of nine million Christ look at him and say, what did you just think? (laughs) So, I mean, it's going to be suppressed. Now, here's a thought. I probably shouldn't even throw this out because I don't have a good answer, but just to keep you in check here and scare you a little bit, give you something to worry about more than a coronavirus virus. How many people are going to be on this earth during the millennium for a thousand years? A lot. But how many of God's people from Pentecost up to the rapture of the church, how many trillions, billion trillions Christians have there been? How is a trillion Christians going to infiltrate 10 billion people, 20 billion people on this earth when the ratio to body of Christ is so bigger than the people that are on it? Answer is, it just goes to show you that God's people who get a millennial inheritance are going to be minute compared to the body of Christ who does not get a millennial inheritance. In other words, the proportion of people who reign with Christ are going to be in direct proportion of what needs to be, even though there was, what, a trillion people saved? You see, I'm just telling you guys, if you don't do what's right, you don't get an inheritance. Now, that brings up another question. Where are they? And I don't even want to go there because I don't have a clue. But I know where you're not. And that goes to show you how that God's people who so flippantly take salvation and then do whatever they want to do with it 
And at the end, when God rewards the faithful, you actually think that you're going to be, I mean, you're going to be reigning with him uh, when, uh, you know, you've, you've taken your whole life and kept it for yourself. You've lost your families. You've lost everything about it. I mean, it's been a thing where, you know, you did your own thing all your life. And now, you know, and I don't know where they go. I, I don't, I'm not even suggesting anything. I'm just saying, if the two models in the Bible are correct, and one of them would be John, and the other one would be the Queen of Sheba, Solomon's undefiled, his only one, then that means that on one model we have one out of 12. The other model we have one out of 1,000. If that holds through the Bible, it shows you that, brother, God is going to have a, he's going to have a reckoning day with God's people who took his salvation and had just continued to live their lives the way they wanted to do it. And it's a, it's a scary thought. But you're going to have these people who are under the iron rule. And that's what the millennium is called, an iron rule that nobody can do anything but at the end, let's go on. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, here's your order of events. Turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. Now, follow with me here. Pick it up in verse, verse 4. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, that's a great key because he just told you that whatever he's going to show you here, the model for it is the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now this is one of the greatest verses. Let me show you something here. This is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that will prove to you the gap, which we all know and understand, so there's no use going into it again. The majority today of scholars, preachers, whoever, will all reject the gap. And when they come, I'll show you how they do it. When they come to a place like this, and it says overflow with the flood, because they have such a disdain for the Bible, never use the Bible, they make this flood Noah's flood. Therefore, 
getting out from around the flood that actually flooded out the second heaven back in Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Let me show you how in a most simplistic, basic way, God destroys these guys to anybody who just can read sixth grade English. Verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, they all continued to work from the beginning of the creation. The first thing he tells you is the context of what he's about to say is from the beginning of the creation. That's Genesis 1.1. Watch the next thing. For this they are willingly ignorant of, boy, are they ever. By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Notice the word heavens. It's plural. The Noah's flood concerned one heaven, our atmosphere. The flood of 1-1 and 1-2 contained two heavens. The first heaven, our atmosphere. The second heaven, out of space. So it's heavens. If it was Noah's flood, it would just be heaven. This is how God screws up a Bible scholar. He'll do it not with some miraculously degree, but just with a simple little sixth grade word that the guy is so smart in himself that he doesn't read it, believe it, and then God trips him up with it. And for you and for me, who are just dumb enough to believe every word of it, we get the truth. One more time, verse 6. Whereby the world that then was, Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, being overflowed with water, perished. It's not Noah's flood. And just in case you missed it, next verse. But the heavens, plural, and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved under the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, uh, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, and one day with a thousand, lo- uh, thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, that's one of the greatest keys in the Bible that just shows you that man is going to be on this earth for 6,000 years. Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden at 4,004 B.C. We are now at 2010. So we are uh, some years over that 6,000-year mark or 7,000-year mark uh, or 6,000-year mark moving into the 7,000th year. And it's showing us that man's going to be on this planet for 6,000 years or so. And then the 7,000 is going to be Christ coming back. So we are at the end right now. We're overextended as a matter of fact. And of course, the answer to that is in Daniel chapter 2. That he has the right to change the times and the seasons and, and, and change things the way he wants to. So obviously he has. But having said all that, we're up against that generation of Matthew chapter 24. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But as the day of the Lord will come in the thief in the night, which, here it is, but the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements melt with a fervor and heat. The earth also, and the works thereof, shall be burned up. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation uh, and godliness? Here it comes. Looking for and hastening unto the coming of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall mount with a fervor and heat. Here it comes. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. That's Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. So that puts this fire, a dissolving of the earth and the melting of it 
purging out the second heaven and the earth at the end of chapter 20. Go back to chapter 20. Verse 9. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. Here it comes. And the fire came down from God and devoured them. That fire right there is the fire of 2 Peter chapter uh, 3. Now come back to Isaiah chapter 65, I believe it is. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Context, Revelation chapter 20 at the end, going into Revelation chapter 21 and 22. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But be ye be glad and rejoice forever that in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem of rejoicing and her people of joy. That's Israel. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no more be heard in the land or the voice of crying. There shall no more hence be an infant of days nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die at a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred and years old shall dwell, shall be accursed. And they shall, now watch it very carefully. Here's your millennium going into uh, the next dispensation, but this is all the government. Watch it very carefully. And they shall build houses, you see that, and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build on another inhabit. They shall not plant another eat. Nobody's going to take anything away from you because God's on the throne. And another eat. For as the days of a tree that are days of my people and mine elect Israel shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And they shall come and it shall come to pass that uh, before they call, I will answer, and while I am yet speaking, I will hear. Now, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, just like Genesis. This is Isaiah 11, if you want another verse on it. Uh, the wolf and the lamb, 11.6. Uh, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the young lion shall eat straw like a bullock, uh, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. The holy mountain there will be uh, Mount Zion. Now, I want you to notice that that shows you how the millennium is going to be. Houses, cities, people from the other nations. Also, if you notice now, the longevity of life is back into effect like it was in Adam's day. Now, here's a twist of this that I'm just going to give it to you because I want to give you everything. Notice it mentioned that people die in the millennium. Now, this is an unheard of thing. And, you know, I, it's a thing where, I mean, this is, 
This is so beyond, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, again, I, everything, to me, everything in the Bible is a picture and a model of something. If I would say to you that in the millennium, after the Lord comes back, people die. Um, they would have such a problem with that simply because we get the idea in our mind that when Christ comes back, you know, that everybody lives forever. That shallowness in thinking tells me that you know nothing about what's going to take place out into eternity or what's going to take place that Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 6 talks about. It also tells me that you don't pay much attention to the Bible. You ever notice in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some people die once, and some people die twice. You ever see that? You have three guys in the Bible, or three types of people in the Bible that show you the picture. One guy never died, Enoch, Genesis 5, picture of the rapture of the church. When Jesus Christ came, you had some people that lived their life and just died, then you had some people that lived their life, they died, Jesus came over and brought them back to life, and then they die a second time. You would think, and maybe this is just me, but I would think that somebody would pay attention to that. If you really thought that everything in the Bible is there for a reason, uh, you would think that, uh, you would think that, uh, uh, that you would catch that. And, and maybe you don't think on that level. I don't know. Maybe you're oblivious to that level of the Bible. But for me, you know, I, I, I look at everything. And when I come through in the New Testament and I see, well, the whole Bible, and I see one man over here that never died, and he's a type of the rapture. Then I see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where you have some people who live their lives and die and stay dead. Then you have some people who live their lives, they die, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. And then Christ comes over and brings them back to life, and they go back through life, but they ultimately die again. So you do have people in the Bible, some die once, some die twice. Now, what is that a picture of? Well, now, if you want to take it to the next model, the picture would be Moses and Elijah. Moses dies twice. Elijah dies once. Elijah gets taken up to heaven back in the Old Testament and never dies. But he comes back as one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and he gets his head cut off and he dies. Moses dies in the Old Testament, comes back in the tribulation period alive, gets his head cut off, dies again. One dies once, one dies twice. And it's typified by two guys who lead the nation of Israel because in the tribulation period, you're going to have some people who die once, some people who die twice. Now, this is way beyond the scope, but follow with me here. You see, death isn't cast into the lake of fire till Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment. So let's don't get the idea that there's no death in the millennium. Obviously there is, because death doesn't get cast into the lake of fire till Revelation chapter 20 where there is no more death. So it's a thing where 
that's the first misconception that people have. Here's what you got. You'll have some guys in the tribulation that endure to the end, never die. They'll go into the millennium and for a thousand years they'll live their life, but someplace in there they'll die. Then you have people who get killed in the, in the tribulation period. They come up and resurrected and go into the millennium and the millennium lasts for a thousand years. They're going to die again. And some people die once, some people die twice. Now I'm going to show you how that works out in just a second here once we move into, but I wanted to tell you that before we go to the next bridge here. We've just seen the heavens and the earth all renovated by fire. Now here's what happens. 29, fire comes down from God. Everything blows up. Verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I, here it comes, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. See what happens? You have the millennium for a thousand years. The devil's left out for just a season. All those people come up against God. God comes down with fire, wipes out the second heaven, purges it, Second Peter chapter 3. And then at the end of that purging, there's a great white throne. And now everybody is going to be judged that hasn't already been judged. We'll not be judged because we were judged on Calvary's cross and got saved. We'll be with Christ judging everybody else. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, first of all, let's talk about who comes up at this great white throne judgment. Malachi chapter 3 talks about God having a book of remembrance. Moses, if you remember, when he got messed up a couple of times, he was afraid that God would blot his name out of a book. That book is the book of life. Now, I've heard guys teach um, that, uh, and I, um, I, I wouldn't argue with it. I, I, I generally think it's probably true, that there's two books in the Bible. There's the book of life, which would be the Old Testament, and then there's a Lamb book of life that would be the New Testament. Now, the Bible at the same time could be classified in one place it is. I think it's in Galatians. I'm, I may be wrong on that. But it, where the whole Bible is called the book of life because the Bible is a book that you get life from. But in particular, you have two fundamental books because you have two fundamental people groups. You have the nation of Israel and everybody in the Old Testament, that's the book of life. Then you have the New Testament people who are in Christ, that's the Lamb's book of life. And of course, that is probably 100% accurate, and I, and I, would, I would buy that. But what, when you come to the great white throne judgment, here's what you've got. You've got all the Old Testament saints who were never in the body of Christ. You've got the tribulation saints who were found righteous, 
they were never in the body of Christ. Then you also have the millennial saints of all the nations that were found righteous. They will be in the book of life. You also have all of the unsaved dead all the way back to Genesis 3 and everybody that died and went to hell. So what you have here, and you know, hey, I mean, I know when we get to the great white throne judgment, there's no time element involved because we're in eternity. But I'm going to tell you something. That thing, if you want to put a time frame on it, that thing could go on. You realize, if you realized and understood what this judgment entailed, I mean, we think it's a mass production where everybody just marches down to onward Christian soldiers and goes in a lake of fire. No, no. Listen to me. Every unsaved man and woman from Genesis 3 up until this point in time will come up individually. Now, just stop and think of how many people that's going to be. And the Bible gives the indication in the book of Romans and also in the book of Zechariah that every man and every woman that ever rejected Christ, small and great, from the President of the United States to the bum down at the mission, is going to have their opportunity to tell God why their righteousness was better than the righteousness of his son and plead their case that they should go to heaven because their righteousness was as good as God's son. Now, in the Bible, you have what is called the laughter of God. It's talked about in Psalms, talked about in Proverbs. In fact, there's four types of laughter in the Bible. The worst one is the laughter of God. And we have a saying in life, he who laughs laughs, laughs best. And that's not always true in life, but it is true. That, that little saying is a biblical saying coming right here because the Bible makes it very clear that when a man comes up and tries to justify himself before God, the indication is it's a great white throne judgment. It's like a courtroom. And the indication is that you're going to have a prosecuting attorney, which is going to be the devil himself, and then you have the the defense counsel, which is going to be Jesus Christ. And when an unsaved man comes up, he's going to try to plead his case before the judge, God the Father, the prosecuting attorney, the devil, is going to rip him to shreds. And at the end, the fallacy of, you want to you crack heaven wide open with laughter? The Bible says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And the context is the great white throne judgment. The thing that's going to break, crack heaven wide open with a laughter that's unbelievable is some guy, some president, some king, some movie star, some bum, some millionaire, some billionaire, some great football player, some whatever, standing before God and telling God that his righteousness was better than the righteousness of God's son. And the whole heavens breaks into a roar of laughter. Probably. 
the last thing that he'll hear as he's dumped into the lake of fire, as he trembles down through space, and that lake of boiling fire comes closer and closer and closer till he splashes into it. This is called the baptism of fire in Matthew that every stupid charismatic is praying for. And honestly, I hope you get. And he splashes into that thing, the last thing that he hears is that laughter of Almighty God that you rejected my son. And the funniest thing in the universe is that your righteousness and my righteousness is better than the righteousness of God's son. It's an incredible. The old boys used to understand it. Old Bob Jones Sr. used to teach his preacher boys, and he said so many times, he said the last 24 hours of a young man going into the ministries training, I wish I could suspend him by a rope over the lake of fire and let him hear the screams and the agony of the people in torment and then set him loose on the world. They understood it. We look at hell today as a cuss word. We look at hell today and this great judgment as just the, the we don't look and see what it's really going to be like. Every unsaved man, every unsaved woman. Here's the tragedy. We as Christians, we're going to be just like Jesus Christ. We're going to be standing there with God judging the unsaved people. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where in that day, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I understand. You know, I've heard many preachers that want to play on people's heartstrings. And they talk about the, you know, they talk about the fact that you have a, an unsaved father or an unsaved mother or unsaved brother or sister or an unsaved friend. And you don't try to win them to Christ. You as a Christian took it salvation for you, but you're oblivious it for them and care nothing about it. And they show up there at that great white throne judgment. They're going to die and go to hell now. And I've heard preachers talk about how that, you know, it's a thing where they will look to you and say, why didn't you tell me? And you'll be weeping and crying and, and feel terrible because of that. That probably makes for good preaching if you want to pull somebody's emotional strings, but it ain't very good Bible. That's not how it's going to happen. When you get to that judgment seat of Christ and you're judging with Christ, I don't care if it's your mother, I don't care if it's your father, I don't care if it's your best friend, I don't care if it's your wife, I don't care if it's your husband. You will stand there as the person of Jesus Christ and all of his righteousness and holiness And you will condemn that person, not as the person as you are today, but as a person you will be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And you will, that to me is more tragic than the other. So you're going to have unsaved people that are going to come up to that. Their name will not be in the Lamb's book of life, nor will it be in the book of life. And we with Christ, judging with him, with God, will put them into eternal punishment. Then you're going to have people that will come up that names will be found in it. This will be the Old Testament saints. This will be the tribulation saints. This one will be the uh, millennial saints. They come up 
their name is found in the book of life. And they'll go into the next phase, which is going to be uh, Revelation chapter 22, which we'll get into next week. Now, I want you to notice. I said that during the tribulation and the millennium, people die. The only place they could go during that time would be back to Abraham's bosom. That seems to be the case when you look at verse 13. It says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. First of all, that'll be all, that sea there will, and I, I know, you know, this, this part of this is in the, is in the Navy a burial prayer thing when you bury somebody. And you say, you know, in a hope of eternal life in the day when God shall, you know, when the sea shall give up its dead because you're burying somebody in the ocean, you know, all that stuff. I, that, that's nice. I like that. But it's a thing where, um, it's a thing where uh, that's not what it's talking about. The sea here will be a, the demonic activity and the, and the unclean spirits that were up in the great deep uh, up there, Isaiah 27 and all those places. You know, I say that, uh, I don't know if, I, I don't think I still have it. I remember I sent it to Bob Gregg, uh, a friend of mine sent it to me. Uh, and it was one of the most moving things that I ever saw. It was during World War II, and a fighter pilot had uh, uh, landed his plane on an aircraft carrier. And he must have been almost dead when he landed the plane. It's a miracle how he got back. But his plane was shot to pieces. And he was shot up so bad that they couldn't get him out of the plane. And uh, it's one of the most moving things you ever saw in your life. And so they're actually showing it that they're having a a barrel at sea with him in the plane. And he's covered over in the cockpit and the priest is there, you know, uh, giving him his last rites or whatever he's doing, and they can't get the guy out of the plane. I don't know what the plane was shot up so bad, they, they just probably tore him apart to get him out. So they were going to bury him in his plane at sea. So after the deal, it shows that all the guys that were standing there get on the wings of the plane. It's on the fantail, that's the end of the craft carrier, and they start pushing it over, and all of a sudden the plane goes over into the sea, and then the ship is still moving, and you see the you see the plane, and then all of a sudden it just kind of turns over and and goes under. It's one of the most saddest things you've ever seen in your life, you know, of a burial at sea. Most of the time, you know, they wrap them up in linen and they put a flag over them and then they drop them down. But this guy, they had to bury in his plane. And that, see that ship pulling away and that plane end upending, you know, and then just kind of rolling over and it's going under. Uh, It's one of the most moving things you ever saw in your life. And every time I read that passage, (coughs) I think of that the sea giving up the dead. Of course, that's not what it's talking about, but that's how they use it. And I'm sure, there's no, there's no audio to it, but I'm sure that the priest was up there using that same verbiage, you know, when the sea gave up the dead. But it isn't people there. That's the unclean spirits that were in the deep, the great sea, Isaiah 27. Now look at verse, uh, four, uh, oh, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead within him. All right, there's the deep with the demon. Now here it comes. And death and hell. Okay? And death and hell. Dead up the dead which are in them. Death and hell would be, death would be Abraham's bosom on the good side. Hell would be the side on the torment, Luke chapter 16. 
So that probably is an indication that when they die, they go back to Abraham's bosom and then they pop up here. And he says it again, verse 14. Now here's the end of death. This is where it ends. This, nobody's going to die anymore. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So at this point, death is done. Nobody's ever going to die again. But it also shows you that death is still in effect during the millennium. And I gave you that verse in Isaiah 65 that says that a a child shall die at 100. Somebody 100 years old and they die, uh, you know, is going to be considered a child. So you begin to see how all this thing works. And then it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is uh, the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that is the final statement on it. And it basically says that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, when they come up at this, now you, you have all the pieces now. Now, you know, my goal is to, is to, is to show you every dispensation componently and give you all the major pieces and a lot of the other pieces. So you can go out of here, get it into your Bible, study it out, and have a a working understanding of it. Once you get what I'm giving you down and you can understand it, then you have the basis in your own personal study or what we do together wherever or what you do in your own reading and studying, whatever, to add more to it once you have the consistency of how it all really goes together. And that is my goal and that is my key. So you have a lot of things now that the average person has no clue on. The next time we get together, now we're going to move from chapter 20 into chapter 21 and then chapter 22. And I'm going to show you now how that, we're going to talk about some of this tomorrow. Um, and I'm going to show you how this, how this, You'll, so you'll hear some of this tomorrow, but uh, in, in the next time we get together, which will be two weeks from today, every other week, um, I will show you in the next level, in the next step of how all this thing really uh, kind of goes together uh, to God's overall plan. That chart over there that we use is probably, for me anyhow, the, the best chart that I've ever I've ever seen. We have them in a bookstore in a smaller version. If you can put them up in your house if you want. Uh, but it starts out there, and I can't really read it from here, but I've, I've read it so many times I can almost quit her head of it. It says that God's original plan was to have a universe of the beings, sinless beings that loved him and worshiped in fellowship with him. That's God's original plan. But the plan in Genesis 3, well, Genesis 1.1 fall short, and then Genesis 3 completely falls short. And what looks like a terrible mistake on God's part, once you stand back and look at the whole thing, you see that it it was all part of God's plan. God wanted that, but at the same time, God would not force that on anybody. So from Genesis 1-1, even though God has his original plan, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, he won't force that plan on anybody by making you be part of it. So he gives 
the angels a choice. He gives the cherubims a choice. Down through the Old Testament before the law, he gives those people a choice. He gives them a choice through Israel after the law. In that 400 silent years, they have a choice. Christ shows up at the first coming, they have a choice. We move into the church age, we have a choice. We come to the place where we get into the tribulation, they have a choice. Millennium, they have a choice. And when you get to Revelation chapter 21 now, the choices are over. And it's a thing where that God allowed man through his free will to exercise yay or nay when it comes to God. But God knew that man could never do it. So it didn't matter if God let Adam fail. It didn't matter that Adam failed. It didn't matter if everybody down through the Bible failed. It doesn't matter that you and I failed. God knew we would. God's overall plan was he wanted to make the point, and you have got to see this. The point that he wanted to make is that in the first Adam, all die. In the second Adam, all are made alive. God came down himself and fixed the problem. So no matter what our situation is or how wicked we are or how messed up we can be, our choice is to go with God. And he made that way possible. And he made that way possible because as you're going to see tomorrow, God has two identities that he's worked with down through the history of man. In the Old Testament, kingdom of heaven, Israel. In the New Testament, kingdom of God, the church. God deals with them differently They make up a different part of the overall plan of God, but they all come together in God's original purpose once we get past this. You know, I've said it many, many times, and you'll hear it again tomorrow. Take a line and draw it, and that's eternity. And then you take, leave the line there, put your finger in the middle of that line, and then push that line out about seven inches. So now you have seven inch space here with a line here and a line there with seven inches of space in between. Now take your other finger and draw uh, at the end of this line a parenthesis and then end of this line a parenthesis. Now you have two lines with a parenthesis with nothing in the middle. Now you want to take and draw a line in the middle of that. And you want to write over on this line going this way, eternity past, and you want to draw on this line, eternity future. And then you want to put one little word in that parenthesis. It's called time. And that time will run from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. 7,000 years. And in that time, that little parenthesis in eternity, God gives everything he created a chance to be with him or not be with him. And he put a parenthesis in eternity to let man choose through his own free will before God picked up his program in eternity future. That's what you have. And the whole Bible is nothing more weaving its way through in that whole concept. Now, you'll hear that again tomorrow. I did it today because I wanted to test it out, and I like the way I did it today, so I'll do it the same way tomorrow. So thank you very much. But anyway, you know, how do you all feel being guinea pigs today? We've got guinea pigs back here. We got guinea... Is it working okay back there for you? All right, good deal. Well, we'll hold up there.